1: We have an exciting show today. Mike, I want you to go ahead and introduce this one. This is another species profile that we're going to do, and these shows have been wildly popular. So today we chose the gray duck. The gadwall. The gray duck, commonly known as the gadwall. Um, And a funny story about that before we get into the serious part of it, when I came down from Indiana, um, I think I hunted down in South Louisiana one time, and these guys are like, oh, there's just gray ducks everywhere, gray ducks everywhere. And I'm sitting there looking around like, what is a gray duck? I had no idea. So that's good that you kind of— you know, reference the common man term, especially from South Louisiana, as the gray duck. Um, But let's get into the gray duck. Let's do a little bit of an introduction from you about the gadwall.
2: You know, Chris, I think what we'll do here is we'll start, having done about three or four of these, I guess this is the fourth one that we've done now. We'll just, I'm going to start by just talking about the taxonomy a little bit. Well, one of the next things that we'll talk about is the appearance, that kind of stuff. But from a taxonomic standpoint, gadwall are another species that falls within the dabbling duck kind of tribe, uh, anadonii, and... It is another one of these species that I've talked about before that has gone through several different kind of taxonomic reclassifications. The latest and current classification for this species is known as Mareca stripera. If you were to to kind of roll back the clock a few years, it would have been in the anus, A-N-A-S genus, anus stripera. And then if you go back even farther and this is, is something that we can that that's on one of these posters here in at headquarters there was a time and actually you can still find some references to this where it was recognized as a different uh, as a different genus and i'm not even sure if i'm going to pronounce this correct but it's Lasmus striparis. No idea what the origin of that is, but that was a monospecific genus, basically meaning that was the only, the gadwall was the only species in that genera.
1: You could have um, just winged that
2: and I would have totally trusted you yeah. that you knew it. <laughs> Well, that's about as good as I can do. Uh, So, in terms of taxonomic relatives, you know, which other species is it closely related to? There's really two of them that falls into that category. One of them people are here are going to be familiar with. It's the American Wigeon. It's another one that has also gone through a taxonomic sort of renaming. It's also the American Wigeon is now in the Mareca um, genus. And the other species closely related to the gadwall is not found here in the U.S., but it's the falcated duck of northern Asia. Hmm. So, uh, that's about the extent of, of that kind of taxonomic relationship that I will get into. But there is another sort of interesting nugget associated with this uh, species that, that I'll mention that I discovered. I wasn't aware of this until I really started uh, researching this, looking for a few extra tidbits to bring to this. There was apparently an evidence of some uh, of a presumed subspecies of the gadwall, and that was based on some observations of a couple of ducks collected in 1874 on Mm. a South Pacific island, Washington Island, uh, to to be specific. There, and it was similar; it was a species similar in appearance, but much smaller, about the size of a teal, and. It's presumed extinct at this time. So, it's a, a subspecies of, uh, presumed to be another subspecies of the gadwall. And the other thing that I'll say here in the taxonomic uh, discussion is that gadwall and mallard hybrids are one of the more well-known hybrids mm-hmm. out there. Probably yeah. second to black duck and and mallard hybrids. And they have been so common, I guess, in in, in the hybrid world that they have been... Um, given sort of a specific name, Brewer's duck. And maybe mm-hmm. there was a time where the Brewer's duck was thought to be a unique species. I don't really know the history of that, but Mallard-Gadwall hybrid is known as your
1: Brewer's duck. Yeah, and I I, I agree with that. I mean, that's probably the more common hybrid that I've seen while hunting. I personally have never shot one, but I've, I've definitely seen several of them. So, it definitely is more common. Um, as far as appearance goes, um, these are, you know, from a distance, I would say just, as a hunter, and not uh, they're they're a little bit drab, you know. But then once you get them up close, these are pretty fantastic looking birds.
2: Yeah, they definitely can be. I I, I think the gadwall, a good looking drake gadwall, is one of the more handsome ducks mm-hmm. out there, and I don't. We've tried to do some of these appearance descriptions here in the past, so we'll, and that's been met with mixed success. So we'll just kind of keep this general. It's about a medium-sized duck, a little bit smaller than a mallard. Uh, the male is going to come in at about one and a half to two pounds. Female about one to two pounds. The male is pretty distinct by the gray herringbone pattern across much of the breast and and uh, upper flanks. Has a, a stark black bill. Another unique characteristic of both male and female is a pretty steep forehead once you once you look at enough or, or visually observe <laughs> enough,
1: <laughs> I'll just look
2: enough ducks you'll start to see that unique characteristic of a pretty steep forehead uh, their bill is is a bit shorter and definitely narrower than let's say a mallard using it as a reference. The male has a very distinct um, black rump. And the other thing most striking about both the male and female gadwall is going to be the wing pattern. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll say that for a lot of these species. The gadwall, both male and female, have white in the speculum, mm-hmm. a good chunk of white. And it's the only dabbling duck that has that characteristic. And it's a very
1: visible it is. white.
2: It is. The only, you, you could possibly confuse it with the white patch on a wigeon, but the white patch on the widgeon is on the... The shoulder, the mm-hmm. shoulder patch, the, uh, yeah, the covert's there. So, let's see. What else do we want to say about the appearance? That's probably about, well, the female, I'll say, has the orange uh, orange bill with sort of mottled black
1: um, spots. So, yeah.
2: and and do we want to do the... Do some sound. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I and mean, I think something that's cool here is, is we actually have some sound and, and you can kind of describe this as as, you, as we're going along. Yeah, so I
2: think what I'll try to do here, I'll play the I'll play this track that's mostly courting males. Yeah, and so that me meh meh that's those are the drapes. That's the sound that they make. And and you can actually hear that. Quite often, I'm not sure what that whistle is we're hearing there. Sounds like it might be a different species it in the may, background. It may have been something recording. else in there, but that meh, 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 That's the call that anybody can do. You and yeah. and I were talking about that a minute yeah, ago. Yeah, I was going to say I like, was going
1: to do the audio meh, 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 <laughs> meh, meh,
2: meh. meh. Telling stories about how you stand up in the blind and start just doing your mouth yeah. call for Gadwall all the time. Right? I'm sure they love it. Yeah. And so then here is the, the female. It's going to sound a lot like a mallard hen, but maybe a bit more harsh. You know, so nothing too unique necessarily about that. And honestly, kind of sounds agitated. Like a, They're like yeah, maybe an alarm call. It
1: sounds like a monotone mallard. Like there's yeah. not really a cadence to it necessarily. Just a like you said that that could have been an alarm call. Yeah, but the the. The Drake Gadwall call is is pretty unique, pretty distinct, mm-hmm. and it's pretty neat to hear that. And so then you can have a pretty good idea that you got a Gadwall coming around somewhere. Well, cool. That's some fancy fancy technology we, we brought to the podcast for the first time. Thanks Hopefully, we'll our be able producer to producer there. Yeah. So as we move on with the the Gadwall, and we get into and this is I think the exciting part about the Gadwall for me. It's kind of like the Green Wing Teal, um, in comparison, that distribution throughout North America, globally, I should even say. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity to show um you know just how widespread the gadwall is and how familiar a lot of hunters are with the gadwall.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about on the gadwall from a distribution standpoint. It's pretty it has become pretty widespread at least in its occurrence. It's a northern hemisphere hemisphere species largest population is going to be here in north america they they also do occur in eurasia and europe uh, but we won't talk a whole lot about about that but here in north america gadwall are really interesting in them being so closely tied from a breeding standpoint to the prairies Mm -hmm. we'll talk about some numbers associated with that here here in a bit but their stronghold for their breeding range is the prairie pothole region there's no ifs ands or buts about that and and then from a wintering sort of distribution we're going to be talking about greatest concentrations occurring in the southern reaches, mid and southern reaches, depending on what time of fall and winter we're talking about, in the central and Mississippi flyways. We'll have some statistics related to that a little bit later on. But they do occur uh, pretty much in any wetland habitat or could occur in pretty much any wetland that you that you find here in North America. Um, they do breed in the Intermountain West. Uh, they breed in California. There's some breeding populations that extend a bit into the Great Lakes, uh, maybe a little into eastern Canada and and then not not too not too far up into uh, the boreal or into Alaska, but it wouldn't be uncommon to find a few odd pairs and some concentrations up there, but the heart, the 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 heart of their breeding range is is absolutely. The, pre, the prairie
1: pothole region. Which, much like the blueing, that really puts them, you know, when the prairies are dry. It really puts them in a position that, you know, you may not see, you know, that production being kicked out of the prairies of the U.S. and Canada um, due to the drought similar to this year. So, um, that's something for people to keep in mind that that this particular species is very, it relies heavily, I should say, on water being in the prairies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of their
2: their productivity. Going back to one of the comments I made about their winter distribution, to give folks an example of how this breaks out, about 80 percent or more of their winter distribution is going to occur. Their population is going to occur in the Mississippian central flyways. Uh, And you're going to get maybe uh, 5% that will go into Mexico. And so then you may may have 10% in in the Pacific flyway and maybe another 5%, kind of give or take a little bit around each of those numbers. But uh, that, that kind of gives you an idea there. The other thing that I'll say, elaborate a bit on here with regard to Gadwall is it is a, uh, a species that has expanded in range. I mentioned that, but a couple of sort of factoids that that sort of emphasizes this. Uh, prior to 1939, there was no breeding record of the gadwall in eastern Canada. Now it's, hmm. not, it's not uncommon at all, N- not in large numbers necessarily, but you can find them readily breeding in eastern Canada. They expanded into the Great Lakes after 1960, and ohio didn't record its first breeding gadwall until 1979 wow. so it's a it's a bird that has has expanded and there's also some really really neat population trajectories over the past um, 65 years that we'll talk about later on with this species
1: yeah and as you know as we transition into more of the wintering distribution of these birds and i know that you know like i said it's so common i was accustomed to pretty decent numbers of gadwalls in Indiana, um, and then came down here and hunted even some some parts of Mississippi, which, you know, your home state of Mississippi is, you know, quite the gadwall state, you, you know, those, uh, a lot of those hunters rely heavily on these wintering populations of gadwall. So as far as wintering, um, they're pretty much all throughout the central Mississippi flyways. Um, what's that total number on that? Oh, boy. Well... Not total number of birds, but an estimated percentage, I should say. Oh,
2: oh, in the Mississippi and Central Flyway, Mm -hmm. it's going to be 80%. That's the 80% number that I was talking about. Now, in terms of breeding distribution, let me see if I can pull this number from my head here. I believe 95% or more of the gadwall population in... Well, this is going to be a traditional survey area number, the kind of Western North America... Uh, north of 90% of the breeding gadwall population is going to be in the prairie pothole region. Okay, So when you start with that, 90% plus of the population being breeding in the PPR, that kind of, that that extends naturally down into the Mississippi and Central Flyway during fall and winter, where about 80% of the population will occur.
1: Yeah, and one thing that's cool, these birds pair up a little bit earlier. They do. Um, And and that could be, you know, one thing that we see sometimes people, hunters especially, you know, can reference the gadwall as you know maybe easier to decoy than some other birds, and you know, in November, December, um, and then as the, the season progresses on, at least where I hunt, they tend to get more difficult and more difficult, uh, and become probably the most frustrating duck that that I deal with throughout the season, uh, because we do have pretty good numbers, but they're just difficult to decoy. Mm, yeah. um, do you think that you know has something to do with the fact that they're they're forming that pair bond so early, so maybe they're seeking out early. They're trying to uh, pair yeah. up, yeah, and that's why maybe they're a little more susceptible to decoys. And then as they pair up, you know, as that season trans, you know, transitions, um, their life cycle transition makes it more difficult. Yeah,
2: I would say that's a plausible explanation. Uh, they are unique in uh, in pairing early, and that we'll explore that conversation a little bit here. So they are seasonally monogamous. We that's the uh, the Predominant mating system in in waterfowl, North American waterfowl, basically meaning they pair new pair anew each year. Um, those pair bonds will form in fall or winter and carry through to the following summer after their breeding effort, and then they the male and female go their separate way. Male does not uh, contribute to to parental care in the ducklings, and so then. Male and female go into the next fall and winter and will form new pair bonds. Gadwall form their pair bonds early. How early, you might be wondering. Um, by November, somewhere based on some past studies have, have found that somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90% of Gadwall are paired by November. Oh, that's, wow. that's, that's pretty early. And so why do they do that? That's been the subject of a lot of discussion. And a lot of folks, I, I think the the dominant explanation is going to be related to their diet. Gadwal are, are for the most part, vegetarians. They eat mostly plant matter, um, leafy vegetation. We'll get into a little bit of that later on. But it's typically poor quality food, which means they have to feed a lot. And without getting into too much detail, we have to ask the fundamental question of what, is the advantage at all of a hen ma- or of a hen of any type of duck pairing early? One of the things that we know is that pairs are dominant to unpaired birds. We know that dominant that dominant individuals, dominant pairs, can kind of run off and exclude other subordinate ducks or pairs to priority or, or higher uh, higher value foraging habitat. So, if you're something, someone, or if you're a duck. That depends on a relatively poor quality diet. Then you might be in a situation, or the situation might have developed, where those individuals that form pair bonds early and a, and and achieve that sort of mate defense earlier in fall and winter, you might be better positioning yourself to the higher quality foraging sites, and then therefore throughout uh, throughout fall and winter, you're going to be you know gaining the nutrients slowly, yeah. although because the poor. Nu- quality food um, that you would need to prepare for migration and breeding. So that's the, I think that's the dominant thought there.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, what these birds are eating because I think this is, uh, which we may get into this a little bit later, but, you know, it's it's one fascinating conversation that I've had with hunters because for, for me growing up mid-latitude and then hunting down here in southern latitude states, we assume that the gadwall is like great table fare. And if you talk to um, people who hunt up in the prairies of Canada, um, and I've had this conversation with Dr. Tom Mormon, our former chief scientist, and but I always find it fascinating, always something to touch on. But you know, they won't even eat them up there.
2: Yeah, Tom's crazy.
1: <laughs> Tom's crazy. Yeah, but you know, it has something to do with what they're eating, right? Well,
2: yeah, it, it absolutely does, and. I don't want to get into the chemistry of all of that because I don't know the chemistry of all of that, but it's <laughs> gonna, it's going to relate to the nutritional components or composition of the foods they're eating and and a whole host of other things. And that would make for an interesting conversation. We'll have to do that at some point. But yes, um, you know, you are what you eat, and what you eat, if you are a duck, is going to or any kind of animal is going to sort of flavor is going to help dictate your flavor, what you mm-hmm. taste like to whoever, whoever is eating you in the case of humans eating these foods. Um, so, and yes, their, their quality as table fare can vary throughout the year. And that, that goes for any of these species of yeah. ducks. So... I have had that conversation as well with Scott Stevens. He has heard it also. Some people just absolutely refuse to harvest and um, you know, refuse to harvest gadwall up on the prairies because they don't consider them good table fare. I am not in that group because I've had I've had good success uh, preparing gadwall over the years. It you know gadwall is a species that does have a bit of an affinity for some. Um, saline habitats, saline wetlands, mm-hmm. and so maybe they're feeding on brine shrimp or something in that in that in those wetlands. Yeah. And so maybe people are more prone to get gadwall. Maybe gadwall is a species that is more prone to be consuming those types of foods. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here, yeah. but it is going to relate to the foods that they are eating. I've had bad experiences with, with various other species of ducks, and so uh, but but yeah, gadwall is is one that's been pretty been pretty reliable. So it's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: As we go through the life cycle, of this bird, we've talked about, you know, wintering now pair bonding. They're starting to head north now. We're they're they're in the prairies, predominantly pra- prairie nesting birds. Has that process rolling on? And, and what are they doing? Uh, are they early arrivals? Are they later? You know, kind of share some of that information about the gadwall. Yep, I
2: will and you know i have a list of things here that we wanting to talk about one of the things that i forgot to say a few minutes ago is that it relates to their mating system the gadwall is another bird another species that has a male biased sex ratio somewhere in the neighborhood of 55 to 60% male to 45 or 40 or 45% female so mm-hmm. some of the males are unpaired you know going to go through the the breeding season unpaired in terms of their spring migration they're one of these birds that that kind of departs on sort of the same schedule as maybe some of the other species, but they arrive later. They're one of the later arriving ducks to the prairies. They are also one of the later nesting ducks that that make mm-hmm. it to the prairies. So, they, they may begin their migration north in, let's say, March. They'll arrive on the breeding grounds April, May. Uh, and then and then the other thing that that sort of extends from that is that they typically delay nesting for up to a month even after they arrive on the breeding grounds and, and that's probably going to relate somewhat to again, their diet and their their need to forage more heavily, more frequently to attain the resources they need you know from um, from the poor quality diet that they have. The other thing that's sort of neat about Gadwall or Unique is that they are one of the few species that dabbling duck species that shows that they use protein, endogenous protein reserves to uh, to, to, to make up some of the protein content in their eggs. Most of the other dabbling duck species will actually acquire protein reserves, the, the protein from the aquatic invertebrates that mm-hmm. they're eating on the breeding grounds, gadwall actually mobilized some of their protein from their uh, from their
1: their muscles. Oh wow, that's cool. As these birds are coming back, and this is, I'm just curious about it, like. Where, where are they going back to? Are these the type of birds who going back to the same nesting sites or going back to the same areas? You know, is that the gadwall? Is does, is gadwall known for that?
2: They are a, yeah, they do show some philopatry to both breeding and wintering sites. On the breeding uh, breeding philopatry side of thing, I think it can, and this is one of the things that's kind of tough to measure, but somewhere between the, between thirty to sixty percent uh, breeding site fidelity or, or philopatry. There there are anecdotal reports and stories from from all sorts of researchers. There's one in particular where I think he documented. He was some field study and he documented a couple of gadwall using the exact same nest site for two or three consecutive years. So they do show uh, female biased, uh, female based philopatry mm-hmm. to the breeding grounds. That uh, they're not terribly unique in that regard. They they follow that same pattern that many other dabbling ducks do, uh, mallards, pintails, so forth.
1: Now, once they're up there, uh, this hen's getting ready to go on the nest. Let's talk about the nest site, clutch size, nest success. So those are some things that we've talked about with some of the other species um, and really broken it down exactly what this nest site looks like, what it is, how it's created, things like that.
2: Sure. Uh, I'll the, the other thing I'll say is they're like other dabbling duck species in that they breed at one year of age. So birds that were hatched this year will will arrive back on the uh, breeding grounds next year, and most of those will be ready to breed and to nest.
1: Much like uh, most puddle ducks. That, that's right. Okay. That's right.
2: They are, as I noted, some of the one of the later nesting species. They will peak nesting will occur in like May or June, extend into July, and that kind of relates to some of the interesting things that we'll talk about with regard to nest success and and maybe. Some of their other, other metrics there. But when they go back, when they arrive there, they're going to the prairies, they're going to be um, settling in grasslands much like any other upland nesting duck will. They nest particularly close to wetlands in terms of nest site selection, they have a tendency to nest pretty close to wetlands. Uh, they also have a propensity for nesting on islands. If you look into the research on Gadwall at all, you will find numerous references to them being particularly drawn to island uh, nesting situations. And by islands, we're talking about like islands out in the middle of a big lake or big, big pothole wetland, something like that. And that typically, that alone is, uh, will lead them to have some extraordinarily high nest success rates in those island nesting situations. Uh, So yeah, nest sites, mid and tall grass prairies, uh, clutch size, it's going to be similar to other dabbling ducks, uh, 7 to 12. The first nest, you're going to average around 10, and then with each subsequent renesting attempt, you're going to see a little bit of a drop in terms of the clutch size. In terms of renesting, since I mentioned that, mm-hmm. they will renest. They are not as prolific as, let's say, a mallard, but there are very few species that are, there's no other species as prolific of a renester yeah. as a mallard. Uh, do you think that has to do with their diet? Uh, with the gadwall, yeah. Well, I would say that the diet is probably gonna, going to dictate the later nesting, and then the later nesting is okay. going to be a bigger yeah. determinant in, uh, in in the reduced opportunities for renesting. Okay. So indirectly, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it, but there could also definitely would also be some interaction there. Yeah, with with their diet and the the, the additional time required to r- replenish nutrients. You know, once they've lost their nest. Incubation is by the female only, the average incubation period. There's not a whole lot of unique differences here among some of the dabblers in this regard, about 26-day incubation period. Duckling survival is relatively high. Nest survival is also relatively high, and we think those two things might... the, The duckling survival thing is particularly interesting because typically you think of later nesting ducks, later nesting hens as suffering lower duckling survival because the farther into the summer you go, the, the greater the chance of a wetland drying up or the, you know, in, in, in the case of a hot, dry year, dry summer, wetlands are going to dry out, you know, so the later you nest, you're generally thought that that's going to lead to lower duckling survival. But gadwall actually do have some higher than typical um, duckling survival rates and that could relate to the type of wetlands they use. They are not very prone to using Uh, the temporary wetlands. So, they are instinctively kind of looking for these deeper, more permanent, semi-permanent and permanent wetlands they're able to use. those Because of their diet, that's the other thing about their their foraging and their diet, it enables them to use wetlands that are deeper than those preferred by many other dabbling ducks because they're eating submerged aquatic vegetation. Um, We need to get into some of the examples of that of that SAV, the submerged aquatic vegetation here later on. But that's, again, diet is kind of, di- feels like it's mm-hmm. dictating a lot of their, their behaviors and a lot of their patterns of, of habitat use. And so, this is another one of those. So, using these more permanent wetlands probably buffers them a little from, that, from the, the typical consequences of late nesting, mm-hmm. you know, from the perspective of how it affects duckling survival. Late nesting is also, I think I'm right in this, is also thought to be partly responsible for the higher than normal uh, nest success rates for uh, among dabbling ducks. And if you think about it, the later you get into the, the nesting season, the more the vegetation is growing yeah. and it's giving greater concealment uh, from, from various predators. Uh, and there may also be some predator buffers or some prey buffering stuff going on there because they're among the late later to nest and you know so there could be some other predator prey dynamics going on there but yeah a couple of interesting aspects of them
1: yeah and parental care is female only just like it most is all it puddlers is. and you know they do have a molt during you know basically throughout the summer there's a, a explain what the timing is of that molt
2: yeah so they do go through a, a a wing molt well yeah yeah, they go through a wing molt the adults will just like all other uh duck and and like all of them, all other waterfowl and the males and non-breeding females, like many other species are going to engage in molt migrations. That's where they'll leave the breeding grounds and they'll, well, the sort of their breeding habitats and they'll go to some more permanent, heavily vegetated wetland where they will drop their flight feathers all sequential or simultaneously. And then they will be flightless for a period of 30 to 45 days. Um, so yeah, they go, the gadwall do participate in those kind of, um, those molt migrations the way many other waterfowl do uh, but the breeding fe- the successful females or maybe even some of the unsuccessful females that made it far into the the breeding season they will they also drop their flight feathers replace their flight feathers but they don't engage in those molt migrations as much as the males do or the non-breeding females yeah. because both those two categories, they don't have any parental care yeah. responsibilities once it gets past sort of egg laying. Yeah. Um, they're so just out there bumming around. That's right. They're out there bumming around. Uh, let's see. For, so for the ducklings, that we we're talking about fledging here, not unlike many other dabbling duck species, 50 to 60 days from the time of hatch to the time when they're able to fly. Um, the females, you asked me a question about this on one of the previous episodes, how long the females will stay with the brood. Yeah. I actually found some information on this with the gadwall. Somewhere around 10 weeks or less, they will. Uh, the, the hen will will leave the duckling and say, you're on your own. Yeah. You go fend for yourself. Wow, 10 weeks. Yeah, that's it. That's rough.
1: Yep. And by this time, you know, birds are on the move. We've kind of come full circle. We're getting back into fall. Early migration. You know, gadwall are really one of the species that are noticeably... A part of some of those really early migrations um, and is that you know a part of just the species that they are or is it also an indicator of their feeding habits um, I've had this conversation with people who go to Canada to hunt and they're like well we don't see any Gadwall at all. And I'm like, well, it's because you are hunting dry fields, yeah. <laughs> mainly. <laughs> and, but also those, the, you know, those very small wetlands up in the prairies, those are some of the first, those really shallow, those are some of the first to freeze. So is that an indicator of, of what's pushing those birds south a little bit sooner?
2: I think that makes sense. I think the gadwall is going to be sort of intermediate in timing of departure from the prairies, probably not too different from shovelers. And if you think about shovelers and gadwall, what do they have in common? Uh, You know, they're both heavily dependent. They're they're obligate wetland foragers, means they have to feed in, in, they have to obtain their food from wetlands. And so, yeah, it seems that that type of that type of strategy would have developed into them having a bit of an early departure, just kind of not wanting to get caught in a situation where they are, um, where they're, they're faced with freezing wetlands all of a sudden. So yeah, that's probably some of the explanation there. They, but, but they are, so they're a little bit, I would consider them maybe dictated a little bit by photo period, but then also they, there's very good evidence that their movements are, are kind of linked to um, weather patterns as well. Snow cover, temperatures, duration of of sub freezing temperature days, that type of stuff. So they're one of those one of those species in this group that is kind of that is definitely influenced by weather patterns for sure.
1: Yeah, and and that makes perfect sense. Um, I just like to pull my own little theories out. Then you can clarify Ab- for absolutely. Everyone else. Yeah, um, but. You know, as far as food habits, which is important for waterfowl hunters, you know, if you're trying to target a specific species, you want to know what these species are keying in on, what's bringing them to a certain body of water not coming, you know, you'd hate to go somewhere where there's no submerged aquatic vegetation because you know Gadwar's so relying on it. What are some of these different submerged aquatics that these birds are keen in on?
2: They are essentially vegetarian and that means that they are going to be eating various parts of plants, whether that be seeds, whether that be leafy vegetation uh, from some aquatic plants or algae. They even eat algae. Uh, Now, they do eat invertebrates to some extent but the overwhelming majority of their diet is going to be plant-based uh, so in terms of some uh, particularly particular examples a whole host of different pondweed species that's a uh, potomageton is the the, Bless the, you. the the genus for that that group of plants that there. That's a really interesting group of aquatic plants. There's all sorts of different species tied with that uh, that genus. Uh, I mentioned algae. There's also a, a family of submerged aquatic vegetation known as naiad, uh, water milfoil, Eurasian water milfoil. Interestingly enough, is a I mean it's it, it's an invasive, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's an exotic, and, and in some cases it can be invasive. Some places it is a problematic species, but it's been documented. Uh, repeatedly that gadwall uh, will use it as a uh, as as a dietary item so Mm. and and in fact some some places certainly in coastal louisiana they they kind of like to have i mean maybe there's a species they would rather have let's say widgeon grass but they're certainly not going to Frown upon the existence of water milfoil, or try to try to get rid of it. So, yeah, I mentioned widgeon grass is another one. Duckweed, gadwall have been yep. documented consuming duckweed. That's that little floating grass or floating floating leaved yeah. vegetation. Real small. That's right. Uh, coontail, mm-hmm. Ceratophyllum demersum. That's what you refer to it as, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought.
2: <laughs> First thing it popped in my head. <laughs> but they also do. They also do eat crustaceans and uh, other aquatic invertebrates. Uh, as I mentioned, the the. They do feed in some of the deeper wetlands than than what we That's typically think of. Yeah. So, and I think that is maybe what's what has contributed to their expansion. As you think about the proliferation of stock tanks retention ponds, um, impoundments, mm-hmm. of, of whether we're talking about hydroelectric, whether we're talking about reservoirs for whatever purpose that are maybe too deep for typical dabbling duck foraging behaviors. So, some of these other larger bodies of water may have areas that will produce submerged aquatic vegetation that gadwall can use, but some other dabbling ducks can't. So, I think I think that is going to uh, going to actually come into play with regard to this expansion.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like you said, they're they're pretty opportunistic as far as habitat goes, and that probably leads them for hunters to run into them so much. Um, but
2: hey, hey, the other one, other thing about foraging behavior of these birds is pretty pretty neat. It's kleptoparasitism. You know what that is? No, enlighten <laughs> Kleptoparasitism is a is a behavior where an individual will actually steal. You know, we kind of think about klepto uh, kleptomaniac, a person that has, yeah. a, has a compulsion to ah. steal. So, they uh, kleptoparasitism is the behavior of stealing food from another uh, from another individual. So, coots uh, uh, and widgeon and gadwall kind of all kind of intermingle in this mm-hmm. group that will kleptoparasitize one another. Um, so, yeah, they will wait on. They'll they'll let someone else do the finding of the food and then they'll go up and steal it from them.
1: Yeah, which is a good point for hunters. Um, You know, if you're focusing on gadwall habitat and you're using coot decoys, a lot of people will use coot decoys as more or less as confidence decoys. It mm-hmm. makes some birds feel comfortable. These coot decoys actually serve as a notification for these gadwalls that there's potentially a food source there. That's right. Food source either in the water or in the, the, the bill of the coot. They That's right. They're fighting for yeah. it. That's why I used to have a big like 13 dozen coot decoy spread and we called it gadwall bait. They, because yeah, because they would just bomb right in just on oxbows off the Mississippi River and you they would be coming in. I just want to clarify something that you said for our audience. Um, you mentioned one of these um, specific species of. Uh, pond weed or a submerged aquatic vegetation. You, you referred to it as use it as a dietary item. And I just want to clarify to our audience that it means that means it. they're just going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciated that. That was fantastic <laughs> note. I see a pattern. <laughs> I see a pattern. All right. So then once you get into this winter distribution, that's kind of where I was going with. Um, very common for hunters to see because of that winter distribution. Um, lots of hunters out there are, are, you know, running into gadwall. Um, some people, you know, prefer gadwall over just about any other species. I know a couple guys that, that definitely do, um, but kind of expand on that a little bit and, and get into, I, I know you, you have some numbers as far as survival and harvest and things like that. Um, I think that's just fascinating to hear the number side of it.
2: Yeah, so in terms of like winter distribution, I know I mentioned that about 80% of these uh, of this of this bird of this species is going to occur in the Mississippi and Central Flyway. It is it's a very very important bird for hunters of coastal portions of the of the Gulf Coast and you know the Gulf Coast is very important mm-hmm. for this this bird. The coastal marshes of Louisiana, coastal marshes of Texas produce large quantities of their preferred foods, and so that's why you see such a strong association there. Uh, you know, in terms of... Uh, think about other areas. The reservoir, Gunnersville Reservoir in Alabama yep. is, I think, another one where gadwall are known to be a very abundant species, and we could probably go down the list.
1: Of, yeah, anybody who <laughs> bass of fishes a- knows that Gunnersville is full of coontail. Oh, yeah. And so that makes the kind of the correlation there. Yep,
2: yep. The, you don't find them very much in, in flooded timber. You know, I'm sure you can, I'm sure everyone has an experience of where they did, but uh, yeah, it's not one of their, uh, not one of their preferred habitat types. Now, in terms of annual survival, we can kind of move into some of this discussion here, and then we'll get into harvest statistics a little bit later on, which also will tell us a little bit about the distribution of this bird. You know, it was, I didn't find a whole lot on annual survival rates for, for this uh, for this species, we don't band a whole lot of them, mm-hmm. and of course, we get our survival data from our uh, our survival estimates from our banding data. Is that
1: because the, it's harder to catch these birds?
2: I, I think because it's going to go back to their diet yeah. and and what they eat. To kind of talk in Chris Jennings' terms, they, <laughs> <laughs> what they use as a dietary item what they eat. Yes. They, yeah, yeah, it, it's just most of the birds that we band are captured. Uh, by the use of, of bait. You yeah. know, over we, we try we put out bait in, in cages or in rocket nets in front of rocket nets and we um, try to attract them to these sources of bait. That's how we catch them. It's harder to do that if you can't put out what what it is they're wanting to eat, yeah. right? Uh, now you can and Paul Link in Louisiana associated with a couple of research projects for Gadwall and Jacob Gray also is a master student at LSU. We ultimately, or they, I won't take credit for any of the field work that they did, they tried Using all sorts of different seeds to try uh, grain mm-hmm. to try to attract them to, um, to to trap sites, they would have very little success in that regard. Ultimately, in order to capture the gadwall that they wanted for their study, they simply. When I drove around and tried to find areas, locations where gadwall were con- gadwall were consistently loafing, just on a little wow. uh, a mud flat or a log or something of that nature, and then they would they called them blind rocket net sets where there was no food or no no bait or anything of that nature, trying to lure the. gadwall to that particular site but they just knew based on repeated observations that gadwall were there gadwall are there and so they would just go set these rocket nets Mm -hmm. and eventually they caught their sample but they were very very difficult to to lure to um to bait site to trap sites so yeah we we just we have a very difficult time catching large number of them and banning large number of them in terms of annual survival rates that i did find Annual survival rates, about 60% for both adult male and female. And then when you drop down to the juveniles, you're looking at about 50% annual survival rate for both male and female, hmm. uh, juvenile male and female. So, yeah. Now, uh, harvest rates, I could not find anything on harvest rates for this species. I would guess it's going to be somewhere in the, I don't know, 8 to 10% range if I had to guess because wow. you think about adult male mallards, the, the one we know most about, we harvest those at a rate of about 12%, 10, 12, 13%. Um, wood ducks we harvest at a little higher rate than that. So, I, you know, I would guess gadwall. Is, I, I don't be know. Up it's there it's pretty high. yeah, it, it's somewhere between 8 and 14%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's not it's not a large uh, harvest rate I don't yeah. think. Now, somebody if if someone out there knows and wants to well, I think if uh, you're looking at it
1: from a North American average too, these these birds are a little bit more limited. In their range, yeah,
2: um, yeah, but and, but people hunt them. People yeah. like them. You oh, know?
1: yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know the most important thing to talk about here is is the. Not the harvest rate, but the the harvest percentage.
2: Well, now we do have, or the overall harvest. We overall do, harvest. We, yeah. we do have that. Absolutely,
1: we have good estimates of of annual harvest. And can you define the difference between those two?
2: Harvest and harvest rate. Harvest rate,
1: rate and Har- harvest.
2: Absolutely, harvest is going to be the total number of birds that we have harvested. Harvest rate is going to be the percentage of a population there that we go. harvest. So, a let's say if a gadwall harvest rate was ten percent. Uh, that would mean that, that of all the gadwall that were alive at the start of fall, we would have harvested 10% of that, right? And so then at the end of the season, after we've collected all of our data from hunters that are participating in these hunter diary surveys, wing bee surveys, we get an estimate of a million, mal- a million gadwall harvested, then you could extrapolate and say at the fall, at the beginning of fall, that would have meant there would have been about ten million gadwall in the fall flight. That is basically what I just tried to come up with. There is essentially the guts of the Lincoln-Peterson um, estimation method that I've been asked about. A few okay. Times. Yeah. So in terms of harvest, um, on average across the U.S. over the period of about 1999 through 2017, there were one and a half million um, gadwall harvested annually. One and a half million gadwall harvested annually. Uh, that's that's about ten percent of the total duck harvest. Mm-hmm. You know, so nothing to sneeze at there. Mallard, of course, leads the way in terms of that total harvest. Gadwall is going to be, I think, typically ranks number three mm-hmm. on average in terms of its importance in harvest. Uh, so the mallard is going to be one. I forget who is number two. I think it's the green-winged green teal, wing. and then followed by gadwall. But if you look from year to year, gadwall is going to be, it may be two in one year, maybe three, four, you know, it's always in that range. But on average, it's the third most harvested species. Uh, in terms of importance across the flyways, it is, uh, it, it's going to be most important in the Mississippi and Central Flyways. Uh, so the when we look across all four flyways, where that harvest occurs, 55% of it occurs in the, in the Mississippi flyway, 30% in the central flyway, about 10% in the Pacific and then about, you know, three, four, five in the Pacific flyway. I don't know if my math added up there. Three, but four, five
1: in the Atlantic <laughs> flyway, you should yeah, say. Yeah. What did I say? You think you said Pacific. Again, oh, okay. But yeah, yeah no, I caught l- it. Yeah. yeah.
2: So yeah, three or, or four in the Atlantic Um So, in terms of where they rank within each flyway, like if you're an Atlantic flyway hunter, you want to know where gadwall rank out in terms of overall importance. They're not very high. I really couldn't come up with exactly where they were. They're going to be like number seven, eight, or nine, you Mm -hmm. know, in terms of uh, importance. In the Mississippi and Central Flyway, it ranks second on average. In the Mississippi Flyway, we're looking at about 890,000 gadwall harvested. In the Central Flyway, about half a million. Pacific Flyway. They come in around five or six. About one hundred and seventy thousand gadwall harvested annually in the annually in the Pacific Flyway. Uh, highest harvest states. Um, you want to take a guess?
1: Ah, uh, your typical, you know, the typical Texas, what? Texas. Louisiana. Let's Lu- say California. Yeah.
2: Louisiana is one. Texas is two. Arkansas is three. Oh,
1: then well, California, yeah. North Dakota, Mississippi, and Missouri. If you start any conversation with you know highest harvest rates, it usually starts with Texas, California, Louisiana. If Except, typically, uh, yeah. You know, typically, and then mix uh, in a few states there. Yeah, that-
2: until it comes to green winged teal, and where you're gonna you're gonna suggest Utah? Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> you are correct. Yeah, we don't want to go back there. You were, I, you were, you were thinking about a different one.
1: I was uh, population status overall. Yes, they are. This is
2: where it gets really interesting, um, or I should say another really interesting uh, part of the what we've seen with this species. If you look at, uh, they're very healthy. Mm-hmm. Population of gadwall are very healthy. They've never been healthier. If you look at, look over the past five or so years, uh, obviously we're probably seeing a bit of a downturn in their population right now, along with all other prairie nesting species. If you go back to the 50s, and let's say 1955 to 1965, uh, this is based on our population data from the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, the average breeding population size for gadwall during that 10-year period was 745,000. 745,000. From 1966 to 1990, the population increased and, were, and over that time period it averaged 1.5 million. Wow. So, it doubled. Yeah. And then it really gets exciting starting around uh, the, the early 90s that from 1991 to 2019, the average breeding population size of gadwall has been 2.9 million.
1: That's a, almost a direct correlation to abundance of water in the prairie pothole region. Would you agree? And CRP. Okay. I, yeah. would,
2: I think CRP, and you can see it with a number of these species, prairie nesting species. Uh, you, If you look at the graph, they were low in the 50s and, and mid-60s. They jump up around 70s, the early 70s. And then they kind of flatline at that one and a half million range or so. And then we get into the late 80s and we're in a drought. But also 1986 was the introduction of the U.S. Farm Bill. Conservation Reserve Program came on and began to put a lot of uh, grass, uh, grassland restoration on the landscape in the prairies. And once the prairies got wet in the early 90s, you had a bunch of grass out there and then you had all those wetland basins refill gadwall populations exploded. They went up to about 3 million or something like that. And over the course of three or four years, there's truly, truly remarkable. They came down in the mid to late 90s. And then beginning in about 2005, they began another uptrend. And and then here, of course, the past couple of years, they've they've gone back down. But you're right. It's going to be the ups and downs are going to be a reflection of the grassland base that's out there but then once you add the water into it as, as well, it, it, it takes – it's what's responsible for that year-to-year variation. But when you look at it over a more decadal, let's say, time frame, it's going to be that, the, the, the stronger interaction of the amount of grass nesting habitat that's on the landscape and the wetland conditions. So, it's pretty cool. Pretty, yeah. and, and you see a similar response with some of the other prairie nesting species like blue-winged teal, northern shoveler. They show a, a similar trend. And so, to put those numbers into perspective, let's look at at it relative to the North American Waterfowl Management Plan goal. Uh, this it's one point nine million is the Naewamp goal that reflects the long term average from nineteen fifty five, I think, to twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. So we are well above the the, the NAWMP goal. And to kind of give you some idea of the peaks that have occurred here over the past twenty or so years, three point nine million in nineteen ninety seven. I think I briefly alluded to that in my description of the graph and then they averaged 3.8 million from 2014 to 2017 with a peak of 4.2 million in 2017. And now those numbers that I'm talking about there are just going to be what we call the traditional survey area, yeah. the prairie pothole region, western boreal forest, Alaska. And so you can add a few additional 100,000 from some of the other breeding mm-hmm. regions, but yeah, it's a really really you know bright story among uh, among the upland nesting duck species there in the prairies for sure.
1: Yeah, now, you know, just kind of to wrap this up. You know, one thing that we kind of hinted on, at least I always hint on is the uh the hunting insights and talking about some specific tactics. I talked about the uh, uh the old, the old coot spread, yeah. the gadwall bait. Um always, you know, fairly you know, not not telling everyone to go out and buy 13 dozen coot decoys. Although it might not be a bad idea. Just got to figure out how to store them. But really calling you know, there are specific techniques for calling Gadwall. A lot of people do it. Do you find I, I that re- they
2: do you find that they decoy well?
1: It depends. Um I I have not found them to respond to the call. Is that very, you or is that just I think it might be user error oh, with okay. the call. Um, <laughs> you know, some of the some of the habitats that I'm hunting are not as um, you know, large rice fields. Um I, I think the guys who were hunting them in Cypress Breaks and on these other ponds, you know, some of these maybe where they were more feeding. And I think they have a much greater success calling and decoying these birds. Um, we, I will say that a, a, a
2: beautifully decoying gadwall will rival a beautifully decoying mallard.
1: Ooh, that's the most Mississippi thing you've ever said. <laughs> I've seen
2: seen a couple of good examples. Yeah, no. And I think all
1: respect (laughs) to the gadwall. I'm just joking around. Uh, These are, it's a fantastic species to hunt. Like I said, great table fair. I've seen just clouds and clouds of these things, you know, decoying that is spectacular. Again, I've also had these things just be the thorn in my side um, in a duck blind.
2: Because you think of them them as an inferior species and you think I ought to be able to decoy those things in every time, right?
1: Yeah, and then but they're they, not. No, yeah. they're
2: they're a really cool bird. I they are they, they, a beautiful Drake Gadwall is nothing to sneeze
1: at. Yep, absolute respect for the Gadwall. I hope that uh, everyone learned a little bit about the Gadwall. Uh, Mike, did you have anything else to add before we get out of here? I probably do, but let's uh, for the sake
2: of I don't even know if I can say sake of brevity at this point. But <laughs> for the sake of wrapping it up, let's let's
1: not add anything else. Absolutely, we appreciate it. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for coming to the table today with tons of awesome gadwall information. I hope our listeners really soak that up. Um, it's great, handy little bits of information you can have to talk with your buddies in the blonde. I'd like to thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting wetlands conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team.